Hello! Welcome to the Everything is Horrible podcast. Uh, this is our first ever Everything is Horrible podcast. We'll see how it goes. I've never done a podcast before. I mean, I've been on them, but I haven't, you know, hosted. So, but this is all Teddy's fault. He, uh, he's, he insisted we do this, so here I am. But anyway, uh, my name is Noah Berlatsky. I'm a freelance writer and critic and the publisher of the Substack newsletter, Everything is Horrible. Yeah, my name is Teddy Wilson, and this is all my fault. So if you want to blame me, that's fine. Um, I'm a journalist and researcher and the publisher of the Substack newsletter, Radical Reports. Uh, So today on the first episode, uh, we're going to first talk about what brought each of us here to this podcast. Um, Then we're going to talk about the title of the podcast and why it's not a bad thing to um, be glum and the problems with Enforced Hope. And uh, I think at the end, we're going to talk about Tucker Carlson and the future of right-wing media. So, so yeah, uh, I kind of wanted to do this because I don't really know anything about Teddy. Um, So I was, and Teddy does um, his newsletter and his work is mostly focused on right-wing extremism. So I'm kind of curious how you ended up working on that. Well, we've followed each other on Twitter for a while now, for several uh-huh. years, haven't we? I mean, I so, think so, but it's all know. just, you know, pretty abstract. <laughs> right, right. I think this is the first time I've ever seen you um, uh, in person here via Zoom. I, I don't, I think I've may, maybe seen one or two pictures of you here and there, but uh, for most of the time I've followed you and interacted with you on Twitter and Twitter and social media, you've remained um, just as... Uh, nebulous skeletal figure to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't like pictures of myself, so I don't put very many pictures of myself online unless somebody forces me to. Well, that's fair. I mean, I've had the same profile picture for years now, so um, and my and my beard has gotten, I think, longer and shorter over the years, so it doesn't always represent <laughs> uh, how I actually look. But I think, um, I think, yeah, to get to why the podcast i think i've been interested in conversations over the years with with just interesting people um about you know just about everything right all these different topics and i think as someone that you know as you mentioned most of my work focuses on the u.s radical right and the various sectors within the far right um and extremism and, you know, I do like talking about that and um, digging into those various elements with different folks that I um, have interviewed in the Twitter spaces that I host weekly that has now become a podcast, that This Week in Extremism podcast. Um, but I think there's so much more out there to discuss and that I find interesting. Um, so, yeah, I... I reached out to you. That was kind of why I reached out to you because I think um, your newsletter has been so interesting to watch, like how many different subjects you tackle with it and how how much writing you do about all, me, all these different things. I think for listeners that if you haven't yet subscribed to Noah's Substack, first of all, go subscribe, but you're going to get like so many different things. You're never going to be, um, I think, um, uh, at a loss or 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 disappointed with 
all the various topics he covers. Uh, you're not going to get bored with Noah's Substack, I think, unless you don't like countdowns. If you don't like rankings <laughs> of things, then you, might, then you might not like it as much. Uh, but... <laughs> But I think, yeah, I think you were, I, I've always thought you were a thoughtful person on social media, which is weird because most people aren't thoughtful on social media. And um, yeah, so that's kind of why I reached out to you because I, I thought it would be really fascinating and hopefully entertaining to listeners to kind of hear us chew through various topics of of kind of, of what's going on in, in politics and culture and society and everything. All right. Well, um, since we've talked about my Substack, I guess I'll talk about sort of the title of my Substack. And um, I mean, I one thing I think that people might be put off by is that I'm um, I'm not super positive. <laughs> I tend to be more I tend to be more glum um, and and bitter is my writing, and so that was sort of why I and you know there's a lot to be glum and bitter about. Um, and so this week, I kind of, I guess, had something of a statement of purpose for the podcast where I talked about why I'm not, well, I guess, I guess you know, I'm on Substack Notes, and somebody there was arguing that basically authors and writers owed their readers hope, that if you weren't providing them with hope, you were kind of afflicting them or, you know, not being sufficiently committed to change or just kind of turning people away. And um, I always kind of bristle at this idea that you need to be positive sort of relentlessly or that there's something wrong with art or, you know, criticism or, or writing that, that doesn't necessarily end by saying, well, this is what we can do to make things better. Um, and so, I mean, I think particularly about um, Barbara Ehrenreich has a book, which I, of course, now that I'm podcasting, I forget the name of, but it's, um, she has a book about positivity culture, uh, which is partially about her breast cancer diagnosis, um, in which she talks about the fact that one of the things that happens when you're diagnosed with breast cancer is people want you to be positive about it. Um, there's kind of a whole range of discourses, um, medical discourses, kind of self-help discourses that, you know, aren't just about sort of like encouraging people to be brave, but are actually sort of say things like, if you're not, you know, that, that you know, that argue that having a positive attitude actually helps you with recovery and therefore, you know, sort of ends up blaming people if they're not sufficiently positive for, um, you know, getting sicker, even though, of course, I mean, you know, some kinds of cancer and is, is a death sentence and sometimes, you know, I mean, cancer can kill you kind of no matter what your attitude is. Um, and she argues, and I, I think pretty persuasively that there's kind of a lot of that in the U S I mean, there's a lot of kind of self-help, and on Substack, I mean, on Substack notes, you kind of see it too, because we're all, you know, everybody there is kind of selling stuff. That's sort of what Substack is. It's writers sort of, you know, trying to make a living and it sort of provides a model for doing that. Um, 
which is great. And Substack Notes has connected me with a lot of readers, but it also sort of like makes Substack Notes feel more, a little closer to LinkedIn and a little further away from Twitter, right? People are kind of trying to be professional. And that in part means people kind of telling each other that they should be positive and telling each other that everything's cool and, you know, sort of like selling each other through selling themselves and each other through this kind of positivity and this argument that you should be positive all the time. And uh, yeah, I'm just not, <clears throat> I kind of, that's never sort of where I'm at. <laughs> just kind of personally, it kind of turns me off. You know, and I think that there's, there's an argument that, you know, sometimes like people should be allowed to be miserable if they're miserable, you know, I mean, or, or, you know, at least that the reaction to people sort of being sad or, you know, saying these things suck doesn't always need to be, you know, well, we can solve this this way or, well, you should really look on the bright side. Um, you know, sometimes you just need to kind of respect that people are facing real challenges and may be reasonably unhappy and that they kind of need solidarity more than hope, maybe. They kind of need recognition and solidarity rather than to be told that they have to hope. Um, anyway, so I was thinking, I mean, the, the article is also in part about um, Duel, which is this uh, Kieran Gillen movie. Um, she's the star from last year, uh, which she, it's kind of this future Black Mirror dystopia type of thing. And she plays two different people. Um, she plays herself in a clone and it's kind of about the clone replacing her and, you know, sort of like, but also like, I mean, basically it's about depression, you know, she's, the character is maybe alcoholic and alienated from her boyfriend and from her mother, who are her only sort of like major relationships. And, you know, the clone tries kind of different ways of being a different person and the original tries different ways of being a different person. And sometimes they seem happier and, you know, they do hip hop dance and, you know, that sort of cheers them up or they, you know, sort of try different foods and exercise. And, you know, I mean, all the, like, it's kind of like a run through all these things that people suggest you do if you're depressed and some of them work to some extent, but, and, you know, she becomes a whole different person, right? I mean, the clone replaces her. But, you know, nonetheless, like at the end, she's still really depressed. And the way people reacted to that movie, you know, you saw some critics were like, this is kind of a downer. Like, why doesn't this film go anywhere? And it's like, well, <laughs> it's kind of about the way that, you know, you can't always kind of get away from yourself and you can't, you know, depression is difficult to overcome and people sometimes are just sad and you know kind of like changing their lives in certain ways may help in certain ways but doesn't necessarily mean they're happy and uh yeah so i i think that's just so everything is horrible is kind of about i mean you know that's the title because a lot of things are really pretty miserable right now um you know, especially I read about politics and politics are kind of grim. Uh, but, you know, also just because, you know, politics have always been kind of grim and, you know, there's just a lot of reason to not necessarily be 
super happy and I explore those. So. Right. And to go back to kind of the original premise of, of, of and I guess what prompted you to think about all this and the comment from the person on Substack, um, I really do bristle at, at anytime anyone says that an artist owes their audience anything, right? From my point of view, whether you are a writer like you or a filmmaker or a musician or a painter, I don't care. I don't think the, the artist or creator necessarily owes the audience anything, right? I think whoever is doing the creating, they are doing the creating usually first and foremost for themselves. It's, it's always an act of self-expression, right? And then it's up to the audience to like, whatever they get out of it is what they get out of it. Right. And, um, you know, if they want to critique it or they find meaning in it, or they think it's awful or what have you, right. That's, I think, not necessarily the responsibility of the artist to, to like, they don't have any control over that. Like once you put whatever you create out into the world, um, you've done your part. Right. And then you don't owe your audience anything extra. Right. I think, and so much, I mean, to, to, you know, you've mentioned, um, you know, books and movies and there's so much great art out there of all kinds of mediums that is really grim. And it is not necessarily uplifting in the narrative sense, right? It doesn't, um, some of like the more interesting movies, the villain kind of wins at the end, right? Or the hero doesn't necessarily win, or it's about an anti-hero, quote unquote, right? Um, or even other types of medium isn't necessarily always uplifting. Now you can find uplifting kind of, messages or hope maybe within those narratives or the way the story is told or the way the artist presents things you can find things within that um but i think like a good recent example that that i really connected with an artist that i really connected with that i think their performance and everything that they've put out i think a lot of it is kind of a little grim and and not necessarily always positive and that's uh the stand-up comedian hannah gasby um i know she she i just recently kind of found out about her and uh watched a recent netflix special that came out i think last week um and i went back and watched uh, a netflix special of hers that was i think came out in 2017 um of not of hers of theirs sorry um that was much more, uh, I think, grim and uh, had a much darker tone than her second, than their second Netflix special. Um, but I still found everything that they said and the way that they viewed the world and how they presented uh, this stand-up and um, and whether or not some folks want to call it, because there's arguments about whether or not their stand-up was actually stand-up and whether it was a one-woman, uh, quote-unquote, one-woman show or or whether it's a monologue or what have you. I think that kind of discussion around it is nonsense. Um, 
I found their work and their art to be just really amazing and funny and hilarious and touching in so many different ways. And there's some hope somewhere in there too, but I think I totally agree with kind of your sense of that great art, a lot of the great art isn't about happiness and happy endings. So much of it, so much of it is about trauma and how do you deal with life and when bad things happen. Um, and that's, I think, oftentimes that's where we show our, 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 are the most vulnerable and the most open is, is during those moments. So, yeah, I think, yeah, the idea that, you know, you owe your audience anything I've, I would first say is, is just fucking bullshit. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, and I'm also like, you know, I like happy art too. You know, I mean, like I read, I read romance novels, you know, I love like Pride and Prejudice is like my favorite novel, maybe, you know, I mean, like, so I'm like, I'm like, it's not like, I don't feel like it's not real art if it's not depressing. Like, I like a lot of, you know, happy, happy art with happy endings or, you know, just kind of silly. But yeah, I kind of, I don't, I don't, I mean, if that's what you have to say, you know, if you have something happy to say, that's great. <laughs> you know, I mean, but also if you kind of don't, that can also be valid and meaningful. And I, I think, you know, like sometimes you kind of want to be validated that things are kind of bad, right? I mean, otherwise you feel like you're kind of being, like you're kind of being gaslit, right? I mean, which is kind of like, you feel like, I mean, I kind of talked about Kafka in the in the piece and about, you know, the metamorphosis. And, you know, I mean, like one thing that's powerful about that is it's kind of like, you know, Gregor Samso wakes up and he's like a bug and like, I think, I don't know, I mean, like, I think a lot of people, you know, you sort of can identify with, you know, feeling like this disgusting outcast. I mean, I don't know, I think about, I mean, especially the way that his, his, like, parents react, you know, I mean, like, it's, it's, he had a kind of miserable relationship with his father. And, but I mean, it kind of resonates with sort of like how parents sometimes treat queer kids. And, you know, I mean, it's just like there's, it, it's meaningful to sort of like abjection and sort of sadness and sort of like not being what people want you to is that's something you can identify with. And, you know, and with kind of the feeling of hopelessness, you know, I mean, just sort of like, having having him say you know having this kind of like absurd like really funny weird work of art say you know yeah you know sometimes you sometimes you feel like you're you know kind of like not human and that's about you know just about internal states and it's about the way that people treat you and you know having 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 people sort of like represent misery and sort of you know say that other people are feeling this too I mean, that's kind of, you know, can be kind of comforting, even if it's not really, you know, about hope necessarily. Well, speaking of representing min uh, misery, <laughs> I think one of the topics that we were going to discuss today is Tucker Carlson. Right. All right. Let's talk about Tucker Carlson. And right-wing media and kind of the future of right-wing media. So um, you've written a couple pieces um in both your Substack newsletter, but also um, uh, Aaron Rupar's 
uh, Substack public notice about Tucker Carlson. So why don't you start off with just kind of giving us a, a, a overview of, of what you were saying in those pieces and kind of give us, um, lay out your argument. Sure. Um, well, I mean, one of them I was kind of talking about, um, well, I was talking most directly about the, the, there was an American progress article about, uh, Tucker Carlson, which kind of, you know, basically argued that he was a, uh, against elitism and that he was airing views, progressive views, you know, populist views that sort of jived with progressivism that other people in the, that other people on cable news or just in the news mainstream media were not. And they were sort of, you know, so it was sort of like leftists regretting his, uh, his departure, which just seemed really um, confused to me because he's a fascist, right? I mean, he's like the leading fascist propagandist in the country and he regularly targets left-wing people, right? I mean, he's sort of like, that's kind of how his show works often. You know, he'll say, this left-wing person deserves your hate today. And then they get death threats, you know, and like credible death threats sometimes, you know, I mean, like, because he's got this big audience of, I mean, like avowed neo-Nazis as well as just like, you know, people on the right, but like people who are very like kind of consciously like fascists um, and who are looking for people to target. So, so that's one thing. And the other thing is we know from the Dominion hearings that he lies about what he believes. Like we have these texts where he says, you know, I didn't actually believe that the 2020 election was stolen, but I'm going to say that it was to my audience to advance my interests, which were, you know, he didn't want to lose audience to Newsmax. He didn't want to, he wanted, you know, people to still see him as a Trump, Trumpist. Um, but it just seems crazy to sort of like, you know, take this fascist propagandist who targets the left and say, well, he says these things, which I kind of agree with, but you know that he lies, right? I mean, you know that he lies about what he believes. So when he says, you know, whatever it is you think is on your side, you know, when he says like some nonsense about, you know, like, like how he's, you know, against like corporate power or whatever. I mean, he's just lying. He's just lying to you. And, you know, he's deliberately lying to get you to do exactly what you did, which is to sort of like, you know, sort of like get left buy-in so that he can, you know, disrupt left spaces and sort of like build power for fascists who will then shoot leftists if they get the chance. I mean, it's not, you know, like he's not like subtle or, you know, I mean, he's a really scary guy and I don't think playing footsie with him is a good idea. Yeah, I think I think there's I see a couple things going on here at the same time. One I think uh, Tucker is is multiple things, right? I think he's a white nationalist. There's all the evidence over many many years of public statements and things he said that are uh, <laughs> that's a lot of evidence to to support that claim. Um I think he's very fascist and authoritarianism. Uh, or authoritarian in his leanings um, as evidenced by his cozy relationship with people like Victor Orban, 
right? Who is currently hosting CPAC Hungary right now? <laughs> um, uh, and that's a place where, you know, Tucker Carlson has interviewed uh, Orban in Hungary, hosted his show there, right? Um, but I also think Tucker fits into what I would call the contrarian industrial complex. So what I mean by this is I think there's an audience out there for for people that are for commentators and and writers and and pundits that are just essentially kind of knee-jerk reactionaries to whatever the kind of mainstream consensus or narrative is, right? At any given time, right? There's an audience out there for that of people that are just automatically against whatever the mainstream media is saying or whatever the narrative may be, regardless of how connected that narrative is to the actual facts, right? And so great examples of people that I would put in this category are people like Glenn, Glee, Glenn Greenwald, right? Uh, and uh, now Matt Taibbi, um, although he may not want to be in that complex anymore. <laughs> but I think there's an audience for that. I think that's a big part of the com uh, kind of uh, component of what, what is going on with Tucker. And then uh, in addition to that, specifically with regards to the left, I think there's a portion of the left that has run into kind of a problem, um, particularly the anti-war left, right? Which I have great affinity for, right? I, <clears throat> when I, for those that aren't aware, I served in the military for eight years from 1999 to 2007. Um, when I left the military, I had kind of gotten pretty radicalized uh, <laughs> to the left. I joined, um, Iraq veterans against the war. You know, I was vehemently anti-war. And I think over the time, over the last 10, 15 years, um, I think the particularly the anti-war left has um, really struggled with how, kind of how to define themselves with discussing kind of foreign policy and how to approach different things. and particularly that's highlighted with what's going on in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think there's plenty of room to critique and criticize how the U.S. is, what their policy is towards Ukraine and what kind of support they're giving Ukraine, right? And whether or not, um, what level of involvement the U.S. should have. But I think for too many folks, particularly on the anti-war left, it's been this kind of knee jerk of like, we shouldn't do anything. Um, we provoked Russia to invade a sovereign country. Like there's some like insane things where people are seem unable to make distinctions. And I think a lot of those people have gravitated towards Tucker because he's just saying this one thing that they really like that is kind of really central to um, their ideological framework of being against war, no matter the particulars or specifics of it, right? And so, I think both those things are happening at the same time. And it's um, it's been in some some cases kind of difficult to watch some people that I've respected that have been anti-war voices and really critique, you know, American empire and the military industrial complex and everything for years and years under both Bush and Obama, right? And, and uh, later under Trump, right? And then 
recently, I think it's been unfortunate to watch kind of how some folks have just kind of allowed like t Tucker Carlson to be a praised voice <laughs> for for his position on Ukraine as though he's some kind of um, anti-war crusader and not a white nationalist fascist. It just seems really unfortunate to me. Yeah, I mean, I think there are various reasons for it. Um, you know, I think the anti-war left felt like they didn't really have a place at the policy table. You know, I mean, with, with Democrats. Um, and I think that that caused to some extent a search for allies elsewhere, which often took them, you know, and that ended up elevating some, I think, pretty untrustworthy from the beginning voices like Glenn Greenwald, right, who was never really a leftist or a progressive and, you know, has a long history of kind of being sympathetic to fascist causes or fascist individuals and sort of centering his free speech ideals around, you know, I mean, literally neo-Nazis. He was, he defended a neo-Nazi. That was kind of his first public um, stance. You know, he's kind of libertarians, you know, like Connor Friedersdorf and, you know, Glenn and, uh, yeah, and you know, I mean, like, I think that there you just end up with a lot of, uh, you know, people whose anti-war stance isn't really anti-fascist and isn't really necessarily progressive, you know, and you end up with, I mean, you know, the 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 figure who's kind of like, who doesn't get talked about a lot, but like, you know, it has obvious precedence is Charles Lindbergh, right? who sort of presented himself as a pacifist during World War II because he was kind of, a, he was a fascist, you know? I mean, he had sympathy for the for Hitler and he was really anti-Semitic. And his analysis of sort of like what was causing the war was basically, you know, something like, you know, global Jewish people, right? Which is where Chucker's coming from too. Right. I mean, there's a lot of dog whistles about Jewish influence and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, I feel like Alexander Reed Ross talks about fascist creep, you know, the the infiltration of kind of fascist ideas and to some degree, you know, fascist people into left wing spaces. Um, and it can happen in kind of various places, but the the anti-war places now are really a problem and it's it's a tragedy you know because we need we need the anti-war left you know we need less war <laughs> you know it's really important to sort of like stop and not invade places and you know to 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 be working on these issues to reduce violence but you know i mean like being on the side of like fascist imperial invasion is not anti-war and we really you can't really fight war if you're like cheering on Putin as he like, you know, invades Ukraine. It doesn't work. Right. I think, you know, the, one of the questions that has come up and been discussed since Tucker Carlson was fired from Fox News is kind of his future within right wing media, like where he goes from here, how influential he may or may not be. Um 
the future of Fox News. What are they going to do without Tucker Carlson? Um, so I'm I'm interested in hearing you your thoughts on kind of like there are. It seems to be there's two three kind of narratives or kind of analysis of what Tucker may may or may not be in the future. Like there's a thought that he will fade away and be inconsequential like someone like Bill O'Reilly. Um, there's the idea that he might start his own kind of right-wing media uh, empire or what have you. Um, I'm kind of within the camp that thinks he will probably end up having a career similar to that of Glenn Beck, right? He, I don't think he'll start his own media company the way Glenn Beck did, but I think he will still have some sort of influence within right-wing media. He won't be able to launder far-right extremist ideas to a mainstream audience anymore, and he won't have access to a large audience. Um, but I think he will still kind of be within the ether of right-wing media and have influence and have um, a, a limited audience. Um, so I don't think he's just going to go away. I don't think he's going to stay as prominent. I think he's just going to be somewhere in that middle lane um, uh, and kind of be not be as main, not be really mainstream anymore, but still be prominent within the right. Um, what do you think? What What is your kind of view? On I think this? you're probably more of an expert than I am, so I I defer to you. I did. I was curious whether you thought that he would uh, be a because uh, some people have said he's go, he might go into politics, and I'm skeptical. But what do you think? I mean. I'll, I'll preface this with this one condition is that um, I have learned not to rule anything out anymore. Like I'm not <laughs> going to say never for anything ever again about anything, especially within the political realm. Right. So uh, with that said, I think it seems um, ridiculous at best that like, Tucker Carlson would be a vice presidential candidate. That just strikes me as just really outlandish. Um, I mean, it's hard not... for me to see why anybody would want to be Trump's vice president because he tried to kill the last one. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. It's 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 a hard sell, I think. Um, People seem to want to do it, though. I, I don't really understand it. <laughs> I think it's, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think with Tucker specifically, I think, I think vice presidential candidate seems ludicrous, but I think there's a possibility that um, Tucker Carlson would go into politics, right? Would want to be a candidate for office. Um, I I haven't seen anything to indicate that he would be interested in that. I mean, I don't, I've never talked to him. I haven't, you know, right. I don't know if he's ever said anything publicly about his interest, but I will say this, the case for that is that there is a long tradition on the right of people going from media, particularly kind of talk show and right-wing radio media into politics and being very successful, right? Even though former Vice President Pence has the personality of, I don't know, um, a gerbil, like he was on talk radio. He was on conservative talk radio for a long time before he got into politics and eventually became governor of Indiana. Um, uh, Dan Patrick, 
was a longtime conservative talk show host in Houston um, before he became uh, a state senator and eventually now lieutenant governor of Texas. So there's a long history of various kind of political right-wing media personalities using that um, to raise their profile in order to seek public office. So I wouldn't say public office would be, or being a candidate for public office would be out of the question for Tucker Carlson. Or, or, and I, it wouldn't surprise me if he ended up like running for um, probably Congress or Senate, um, you know, something like that. I mean, it, um, I mean, we've had much stranger people run for Congress and Senate in the recent past. So right. he wouldn't even be the 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 strangest candidate he wouldn't be an outlier no and so yeah i mean i yeah i mean i think it's possible that he would run for public office vice president uh no doesn't seem likely yeah no i'm but then again like i said before i will never say never to anything (laughs) ever again right (laughs) so we were supposed to talk about uh Maybe maybe vaguely cheerful things at the end. So, what did you uh, you had? Did you have a, 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 a something that was not quite so horrible for the end? Of the- oh, that's right. So, our our ending segment of this podcast <laughs> is going to be right. this week's least horrible thing. Yeah. Um. And so, my nomination for this week's least horrible end, least horrible thing, is the writers' strike. Well, yeah. That sounds counterintuitive, because they're on strike um and you know that sucks because there's a lot of really great television that i like to watch that i won't be able to see right now like the all the late shows you know everything from stephen colbert and and the late show to uh the assortment of of recent guest hosts that have been on the daily show those are they have all shut down production um there's TV shows and movies that will probably be affected over the coming months, right? Because you won't see it right away, but within the next weeks and months, as as there's probably slowdowns for production of television shows and movies that might be delayed, like there's a lot of great entertainment that we'll miss. But um, I think that the strike has really been an opportunity to showcase like how important labor organizing is and the importance of, of, of labor unions. Um, and so I think it's, it's really great that the public is, is able to see this and see um, in some ways how, how, much, how much work and effort goes on behind the scenes of so much the, of the entertainment that, um, that we consume um, is on the backs of, of these writers. Um, and um one thing i'll note too is is um is if you look at uh the the um the writers guild of america they actually put out a statement um i think it was uh, a few days ago when they decided to go on strike on may 1st um about why they were going on a statement they also published the list of demands um, or proposals that they were offering and the the counter offer from these media companies. And some of the proposals, the media companies didn't even offer a- um, No counter offer. There was no counter offer. They just outright rejected the proposal. Um, 
things like, and these are not outlandish things. I think if, if people want to go read it, they can at the WGA website. Things like um, weekly pay, right? So that writers, um, if they're on a, a TV show or what have you, if they're writing, they can be paid on a weekly basis, right? Instead of um, kind of at the whim of the studio or whatever, or monthly, right? It makes your income stream um, more manageable and, and steady. Um, things like that that the these studios or these media companies just outright rejected, didn't even offer a counter proposal. And there's uh, quite a few of those in there. So, but um, but yeah, I think um, even though the writer's strike is is it, it seems like it kind of sucks, I think it's it's actually uh, a good in the long run. Um, one that I hope these writers um, are able to um, really get the benefits um, that they, I think they've earned, right? And that they can, um, that this will help them in their negotiations. And also, I think it's a, it's good for the public to see um, why unions are important and why it's important for, uh, why organized labor is one of the bedrocks of our democracy, so. Yeah, I guess the thing I was, I don't know, I kind of went back and forth, but uh, I just caught up with Barry, the, the television show, um, Bill Hader's television show. Um, so that was my happy thing this week, this really bleak, you know, uh, television show, which which kind of shows how important writers are because it's really, really well written. And uh, the people who worked on it should be should be well compensated because, you know, it's 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 a bleak joy. So. All right. Well, and that's interesting because that's one of those shows that I've heard nothing but good things about. And I've always liked Bill Hader. Right. Yeah. He's really funny. And I know that I think he he's like the major creative force behind it. He He's directed it. Am I right? And he directs some episodes. I mean, he's the showrunner. He directs some episodes. Um, I'm sure he is involved in writing, though. I mean, I mean, they probably have a writer's room as well. Right. And it's I'm it's, sure they have it's a writer's room as well. It's been one of those shows that's been on my list of like, okay, I'm going to have to get into that eventually. It's really good. It's worth seeing. Okay. All right. Yep. All right. So, so yeah, we made it. We finished. This is our first podcast and you listened to the whole thing. Uh, thank you for listening to the first episode of the Everything is Horrible podcast. Uh, we're going to publish this, I think, every two weeks. So you should expect the next episode late this month. Uh yeah, the Everything uh, is Horrible podcast is hosted on Noah's Substack newsletter, Everything is Horrible. Um, and you can should be able to find the podcast on iTunes and Spotify and all the other uh, podcast platforms. So if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics that you'd like to hear us discuss, um, feel free to submit them on the Substack newsletter or via our various social media accounts. Uh, thank you again for listening. You can support my work by becoming a paid subscriber to the Radical Reports newsletter at radicalreports.substack.com. And you can find me everywhere on social media at Report by Wilson. And you can support my work by becoming a paid subscriber to the Everything is Horrible newsletter. That's uh, noahberlatsky.substack.com. Uh, and, you know, I'm I'm on Twitter at nberlat and B-E-R-L-A-T and various other social media platforms you can find me under Noah Berlatsky. Are you on Blue Sky yet? I am not. Nobody's invited me. I'm not Nobody's one of the cool invited kids. Me either. We <laughs> I, we this is not the cool kids table. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Until next time y'all.